0: guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Carl Burkhardt. He is the uh, founder and director of One Earth, a, a firm that's looking at trying to foster innovation and growth, especially for the new economy. So, Carl, thanks for taking the time to chat today.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Awesome. So tell us a little bit, but a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in working on sustainability and fostering new enterprises?
1: Well, uh, goes back to um, I mean, I've had a lifelong interest in the environment um, and got a master's in architecture and worked specifically on green building movement. It was emerging in the Bay Area in the in the nineties, uh, and um, I kept feeling like when, when web one sort of emerged, uh, it became clear that there was a whole new world of opportunities um, to communicate with people um, and to really build kind of a new way of doing things, a new way of thinking about the world online. So I pivoted and I went into the online world. and. And that was, again, uh, someone nicely summed up the difference between what web one, web two, and web three. In web one, which really went to about 2005, um, went from like 1990, 2005, it was really about, it was re- essentially read only, as some people describe it. was It was like this new universe of channels where you could communicate and write, and the blog was invented and, Uh, So I jumped in kind of headfirst into that and started a a blog originally focusing on this intersection between architecture and the environment and technology, and then more and more just kept moving into um, technology, clean energy, um, and then the next step was (laughs) climate change. And so I kept migrating closer and closer to this sort of um, fundamental issue of climate change. And as a lot of people know, 2005 was sort of the year Al Gore did his big movie and kind of became more mainstream Um, and then um, you know web 2 then is actually sort of where I really uh, got started getting my teeth into how the web you know with web 2 it's really interaction right it's not read only it's read write it's beginning of the social networks Facebook celebrity culture online and all of these new opportunities to engage with people and shift lifestyles so I ended up getting um, recruited to go to move out of the Bay Area to LA uh, and to start join a startup called Evo, which was uh, one of the very first uh, sort of green lifestyle um, startups. And it was trying to aggregate and this new universe of sustainable brands. And it was just percolating at that time. <clears throat> and so yeah, so I became the product um, director of, of that company and um, and across the street and a block down was um, the very, very beginning of Leonardo DiCaprio's Foundation who uh, in, the, in the, we were in Venice, Santa Monica area. There was just all the greenies were over there. And um, at the time, Leo uh, had done this movie called 11th Hour and, um, the production team was really near where I worked. And of course it was a small community and uh, learned about, you know, the beginning of, of his foundation um, and started, I did a lot of strategy work for nonprofits and, and startups. So I wrote some early strategy documents um, and kind of became an advisor, then a consultant, then pretty much full-time for many years. Um, at DiCaprio foundation which grew to a juggernaut level foundation moved over 100 million in eight years uh to environmental projects and um the my my focus there i i had this big media background which i didn't get to i, I ended up starting a blog and that got acquired by planet green eventually and um produced a show on climate change in the environment for um discovery uh, an online new show and that's sort of all dovetailed into creating kind of becoming the content director for the foundation and, and working on um, really all aspects. It was a small team. Uh, and of course, what happened there was in, in addition to the successful fundraising, um, there was a lot of communication because there was a big audience and that audience grew <laughs> from, you know, in the old days, it was sort of like, wow, a million followers. <laughs> holy crap like who's ever had the ability to talk to a million people and then the next week it was two million and then the next month it was five million and then the month after that it was 10 million and then it was 20 and then it was (laughs) it kind of kept going and so at that point you know it's almost like you're a weird hybrid between a foundation and a media company and so i sort of managed that um that process there and, uh, and one of the projects um, that, one of the ideas that was started at that time was called One Earth, which was this really cutting edge um, science, uh, science, we call it actionable science, like science that can make a difference, science that can help inform people, can help inform governments, can help inform businesses, and, and really filling those critical gaps um, through philanthropy and so that was the genesis of One Earth, which then spun out in 2019 as its own um, nonprofit uh, organization. And so now we're, um, you know, uh, still small and mighty and publishing a lot of uh, important literature and working on this, uh, a lot of on the UN conventions around climate change and biodiversity and really trying to empower, you know, stakeholders and and, um, decision-makers in the space to really envision the future that's possible rather than try to like op- operate constantly in crisis mode, really think about the future we want to create. And that's really what One Earth is about. It's like, what's the future we want? How do we how do we get, and how do we get there? So that's, um, yeah, that kind of catches it up to speed in a, in a lightning, uh, light, lightning uh, speed there.
0: That's awesome. So it's, mu- your current approach is, much more of a trying to create a positive vision to you know sustain progress going forward um, how has how has the environment not not the environment environment, but the environment in terms of the public changed over the last five years? I mean, do you what what kind of change do you see as somebody who's kind of closely related to media and to a foundation and trying to get people motivated to actually do something?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'll tell you when I when I started my blog and in, in the early days I wasn't writing about climate change that much. Um, and this was with MNN, um, which some people remember that it got merged with uh, Tree Hugger eventually. Um but I I would when I would write about climate change, I remember one night I was I, I posted a piece at about one in the morning, and I often wrote kind of after work hours at night. And uh, by 103am, yeah. um, I had four comments basically attacking me, um, one, death threats, uh, stop, you know, climate change is a hoax it's not real, you're, you know, you're a liberal Al Gore person, you know, like, but, and also just horrible things <laughs> were said about me. Uh, and and the more popular my blog got, the more vicious the attacks got. Um, and so it was it was a really weird moment to be starting because there was a very organized and we, we later found out very organized and well funded <clears throat> uh, uh, effort in the United States in particular. Um, But also in Australia and the UK to discredit people um, trying to get the information about climate change out to the public. Um, And that was um, there's really interesting um, studies now on on how this was all done, but it was it was very vicious. So, of course, at the time they were exploiting people just not really understanding climate change and all the confusion around it. and. certainly some people could start to see signs like especially and i i did a, a a pretty popular post on glaciers um and i did it was the top 10 of uh, melting fastest melting glaciers i think was the name of the post and people were just starting to get it and um that so that would have been like you know in the late the 2008 2009 right around then 2010 really i felt like that copenhagen happened Um, Obama, you know, got elected, so suddenly there was like politicians were taking it more seriously and uh, Copenhagen was a big moment, that was the climate conference in uh, 2009, at the end of 2009. And I feel like 2010 sort of really kicked off this decade of um, activism and much more organized activism uh, from a lot of different organizations um and, and including i i worked with uh gcca which has a campaign called tick 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 which was sort of a sort of a hybrid all becoming a, a sort of web 2.0 type campaign um and uh yeah it was it was um the movement sort of started kind of in earnest really right after copenhagen and and then the other thing that started is that we started seeing the climate impacts you know we had we had had Hurricane, um, you know, Katrina. Then we had Sandy, and then we started getting the fires and the crazy heat days, and then the polar vortex, um, when we would get like, you know, hot days in in New York in January. People really realized. I, I think it just became evident that oh, this. Is, not only is this not a hoax, um, this is really happening much faster. And it's I
0: happening think, to me. You yeah know, it's and it's or i
1: yeah or i know somebody or my my uncle on the farm can't grow this crop anymore like all of that started happening And, and so i think then you hit you know like a year like we had with the crazy the covid crisis and the fires and the floods and you have you know beginning of this like apocalyptic Sort of reality, and and now when Yale University run has run a a, a survey called um, the Six Americas, which came from a paper where they sort of tried to dissect Americans and how they stood on climate change, and and you can really see the change of people. Um, the the amount of people who have who dismiss climate change um, isn't hasn't changed that much actually, but what has changed is the people that are like either unconcerned or don't care that has grown smaller and has migrated more to people that are concerned now the thing that's really interesting though is that as you get more and more people waking up to climate change you get this dystopian narrative emerging and this is a real problem and i will say there's this they uh, with the gen z in particular they they call it doomerism where there's a huge percentage in, in America, I think, I hope I'm saying the figure right, but it's something like 17% of Americans think it's too late to do anything to solve climate change. And, and you know, guess who that helps, right? The incumbent forces that don't wanna change. Yeah. Uh, and, and, then, and then when you look, go to young people and you look, I think this is across several countries, it's like more than half of young people think it's too late. So the problem with that, of course, is that you get disengagement. And what we need at a moment right now is lots and lots and lots of engagement, not disengagement. And so um, that is a con- great concern of ours. Um, in fact, I, I often say in my talks that the climate denial industry, which you know attacked people like me back in the day, um, they don't have to work, do their work anymore because the doomerism is taken over and that's actually just as effective at suppressing action. Hmm. Um, and and getting people like young voters to turn out and and I, I mean there's other issues of course with like lack of uh, faith in government organizations yeah. and things like that but we have we do have a real big problem and um, so you know actually I think a lot of people might remember Leonardo did another movie in 2016 called Before the Flood which is really well worth watching that documentary uh, thing. think uh, it was released with National Geographic. And um, it, was, it was a beautiful film and it really was really dark. I mean, it was like, um, it was very well done and, and it, went, it went there and it was very dark. And I remember seeing the reaction on social media was like, this is depressing. Like, tell us, I don't, we, we understand, we know it's a problem. We know it, we need to do something. Tell us what to do, what do we do, right? So actually that some of that feedback was what led to one earth was realized wow we need actually science so much of the work before that point had been if we only scare people enough <laughs> they'll get it and then they'll take action right which yeah. is a very flawed theory of change because when people are scared and petrified they actually don't take action so That's and what we are yeah, and what we we're hearing from the young generation is like, tell us what to do. We want to take action. What do we do? What do we do? And we're like, oh, actually, nobody knows. <laughs> like, I mean, there was people know, sure. But the thing is, they're buried in these very complicated scientific reports and mm-hmm. long economic analyses and white papers and McKinsey stuff. Right. And no one's ever going to access. So One Earth was really there. Like, let's make this accessible. Let's show people through science what's possible and actually not only what's possible, but how cool the world will be if we do it. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, one of the things we funded as part of One Earth, um, I'm holding it up, I know this is audio. It's a a book called Achieving the Paris Climate Agreement Goals. This was really like one of our first big investments in scientific consortium Hmm. to really answer the question, like what can we do? How do we solve climate change? Um, Like let's get into the nitty gritty hour by hour and actually they ran they created an hour by hour scenario of energy demand through 2050 to model the best and most efficient way to decarbonize um, and reduce all these climate emissions. Mm. And um, so that book came out in 2019 a lot of literature has been written um, and it's influenced a lot of the UN, you know, um, IPCC, which is scientific um, literature for the UN. Right. that's interesting
0: I've never heard of that I'd love to to see a copy of it I'd love to get a copy of that
1: um, we, have a good, we have a good summary on our web it's it's 500 pages so it's very very dense a, a very technical German aerospace was involved uh, Germany's NASA and but it uh, we have a good concise more human language <laughs> version on the website uh, which you can access
0: you um, as you were talking you dragged me over like three or four pages uh, rabbit holes so just to kind of uh, go down a few um, when was it that you published the first article on climate change you said 2005 where you got attacked
1: oh that you know that was no we're probably talking about I think I started my blog in 2006 2007 and uh, this probably would have been 2008 maybe leading up to okay the cop, yeah, it was around that two thousand eight, two thousand nine, yeah, and you'll remember in two thousand and nine, the year of the big Copenhagen, which is the the UN um, climate mm-hmm. talks um, that were supposed to give us the treaty to to solve climate change and didn't. Um, but that was the year there was a uh, effort to um, they called it Climate Gate, mm-hmm. um, and it became a, uh, this cons- conspiracy that all these scientists were jiggering the science to. Mm-hmm. Um, to fake the problem, and and that was uh, that was when the attacks really started that year of two thousand and nine.
0: So you had mentioned that um, the source of these attacks um, is there evidence as far as who was funding these sorts of attacks? Like what was behind the effort to to do the climate denial?
1: Yeah, there's. Um... There's a bunch of, so there were some investigative journalists that did try to track the money.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And I'm trying to get the name of, there's a really good book that sort of documents the whole climate denial movement. Um, Is it Heads in the Sand? Maybe we can, you know, maybe afterwards we can create a little list. Um, There's a great blog, uh, well, uh, Desmog blog was actually a bunch of really great journalists that did a lot of the tracking. A lot of it ended up, they found it flowed through the Heritage, um, uh, I believe the Heritage Foundation, and some of those think tanks, those very conservative think tanks, and a lot of that money came from uh, the Koch brothers, uh, K-O-C-H. Big oil um but so basically but they, they were funded well, they by were, big oil. Well, they are actually the Koch brothers were big coal, right? They're the number the largest coal company in the world privately owned. Um and but but they 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 found absolutely uh fingerprints from um several of the big fossil fuel companies which um you could dig into in that literature. Uh, you probably know who they are. Uh, and um, yeah, so it was it was across the gamut. It was coal, oil, and gas.
0: What's interesting is there was um, congressional hearings last week where they dragged the CEOs of the different uh, big oil companies in to, fig- to have them explain their positions in terms of Climate change and addressing these issues, and specifically bringing up their funding of climate denial. Yeah. And Congress had requested documentation, and the CEOs were like, Well, you know, I don't know anything about that. That was before my time. It kind of just hoping that they could wash it away, wish it away. Um, immediately after that, the uh, chairwoman Mahoney. has started issuing subpoenas for that information. So, you know, trying to figure out the trail that goes back to this kind of negative feedback loop that comes from fossil fuel is really kind of imperative to, because then you see the fingerprints in terms of how they influence public policy. Yeah, And really that gets to us being hamstrung to not take more positive action on a public-private basis to really make effective change and, and to get to where we need to be.
1: Yeah, and there's you know actually an even additional issue which and by the way I think Greenpeace U.S. has a good thing. It's called um, a climate denial history, and it starts in 1957, and they go year by year through all of the evidence of mm. what the fossil fuel companies knew. So there, here's here's the thing: is there's there's um, you know, we knew we knew it was a problem, but we thought it was a long way away, and we weren't going to worry about it. And then we knew it was a problem, and it's an, and it's an imminent threat to society, but we're still not going to say anything. And then there's, uh-oh, this is getting scary. We have to actively confuse the public about this as is an issue. So once you cross that line, I believe you open yourself up to liability. Um, and a lot of legal scholars agree with that. So, you know, you could make the case that just because they knew internally that it might be a problem doesn't hold them liable for the damages they've caused through emissions. But um, once you actively are trying to confuse A, politicians, B, the public, other companies, the private sector, insurance companies, once you're actively trying to confuse those people, That is intent. That's malicious intent, right? So I feel like that's going to be, we're going to be seeing, uh, and I imagine some of these (laughs) CEOs are trying, there's a lot of musical chairs going on trying to, looking down this very long barrel of potential litigation coming. And I I forgot, I saw somewhere recently, there's over something like several hundred active cases now Mm. where um, Employees of fossil fuel companies, or plaintiffs like young kids saying, "You're robbing us of our future," all the way to other companies suing them for um, damages to their business. Like you're starting to see this like pileup of litigation, mm-hmm. and and it's this new um, world, right? Like I mean, if, like if there's a paper out. I think the, the update came out last week, which is that effectively thirty. Thirty com- companies, uh, lot, many of which are state-owned or partially state-owned, are responsible for like a huge percentage of of all climate change damages, and um, and you could sort of divide that into the point at which we all knew it was a problem. Like, and that in some ways that's what the post Copenhagen moment was about we have we're we're publicly acknowledging starting in 2010 that this is a threat to human society and therefore anything prior to anything after this is there's known risks associated with burning these fuels and and so you know maybe you could sort of make 2010 the demarcation point and say okay well we didn't really fully know before that, but um, I think a lot of people are making the case that they did know and you can even see memos internally going back into the like the seventies, seventies eighties. So yeah, I mean the litigation issue is a really big question. Um, we'll see how it pans out I mean there's yeah. a lot.
0: So to um, steer this ship radically in a different direction. Um, you know, one of the issues that really drives CEOs, uh, corporate CEOs, is this need for growth. You know, the model, the economic model that we have is really driven towards ever-expanding growth and that growth basically depended upon fossil fuels at this point. So I guess the question is, how do we get from the point where we're at now to a point where we're either growing or quote unquote, degrowth, you know, the idea of sustainably being able to grow, but with a smaller economy, one that's more sustainable for the planet, and is not creating the same long term consequences. What's your feeling on degrowth first? Like, do you think that's even possible?
1: It's a really, really big question um, there. So I can tell you what I feel personally, and I think there's yeah. a lot of uh, academic work happening in this space um, that's really interesting. But um, I believe that uh, human humans, um, there's something in our brain that we need we need growth, we need challenge, we need to achieve, we need to uh, overcome things. And we like uh, the competition of getting on top. And even if, like as we've seen in past uh, you know, ex- experiments, um, it's societies often don't do well when everything tries to get levelized. And if you go back to, um, you know, I'm Jewish, like you look back at the Jubilee, where the word came from, um, it was really a, a way to try and, Level the pe- level the playing field, but actually allow for growth. And so, in the J- jubilee, by jubilee,
0: you mean the elimination, the periodic elimination of all debt.
1: The pe- periodic redistribution of all wealth and elimination of all debt, and that generally was every thirty years because that was a generation. So, the idea with the the, the Hebrew scholars of the time uh, and uh, were that you know we um, and this goes back to biblical times, right? Like the that. You can't, you need both, right? You, you, you have it, it's never going to be one or the other. There's, we're going to have to have mechanisms to compensate, right? So enter taxation. (laughs) Like if, if we had a fair and just taxation system that, that tax people when they have extraordinary success, but lets them keep most of that wealth, we have absolutely no problem. I mean, and I'll just give you one stat there that I did. I looked in the Credit Suisse report that just came out recently. Um, So there's 0.03, the top 0.03%, so let's call it two and a half million individuals on the planet collectively have 100 trillion in accumulated wealth. So a tiny, tiny tax, uh, let's call it 1%. A uh, wealth tax. This is again, the thought experiment land, like so no one attacked me for. <laughs> I'm certainly not a tax uh, like uh, ac- uh, expert, but let's just do the thought experiment. Um, if these individuals, and it's not that many, decided to do one percent wealth tax on themselves, we could pay for everything we need to do. And I, I have a piece on this called uh, one one point five trillion for one point five C, which sort of breaks down. Um, The surprisingly little amount of money that's needed, um, considering we just spent $16 in the U.S. on COVID in a year and a half, um, you know, this is a very small amount of money to basically create a future for everybody that's peaceful and prosperous. Um, It seems like a very small price to pay, right? But, um, you know, so I guess my point being that, that capitalism isn't necessarily the problem. It's a lack of redistribution and a lack also, you can argue fairly that a government's ability to implement, which I think there's fair fair critiques there as we've seen. Um,
0: well, that but, goes back to Citizens United and kind yeah. of the compromise that was there.
1: That's a yeah, I mean, it, it's like, look, it's. So here's what I have to say about degrowth is that we may have to do degrowth because we could, we never got the balls to do taxation correctly. And I mean, if you read Piketty, you know, Capital, which is if you have the time and the brain, I, I have to confess, I only made about third way way through it. So heady, um, but really at the end of the day, it's just about mechanisms for redistribution that are fair and keep people happy and you know, uh, give people opportunities and don't punish individuals for being successful, right? Like, and there's different numbers being thrown out, uh, but you know, we could go back. I, I don't think anyone's talking about the FDR tax rate of 90% or whatever it was, but the but, but problem is we've now, because we haven't done that so systematically for decades upon decades upon decades, um we have a crisis on our hands and in, and it's not just the social safety net crisis which is a huge crisis in America um the affordability of healthcare and the fact that we have to pay for healthcare is insane really um but then we have now these compounded crises like who who pays when a military base sinks into the ocean like taxpayers have to pay for that like Who's gonna pay when Miami, like Miami, needs a bond every year to repair their roads because they have day, daytime flooding now, um, uh, you know, on a regular basis, and buildings are sinking. Like, who pays for all this stuff? <laughs> like, so um, you know, now we have this problem where the level, uh, we're not even talking about taxing. Like, you saw a mansion just rejected a billionaire tax. Like. We can't even say, okay, billionaires should get a little bit of a tax, you know? And meanwhile, we are we have compounded crises upon crises and we still can't even begin to have a conversation about having the people that have been successful. And, and we have to say a lot of these people have been successful because of fossil fuels and because of the degradation of nature. Um, no. Huge fortunes have been made cutting down forests Huge fortunes have been made digging up coal and drilling for oil. So, you know, I'm not saying everyone. I mean, there's, there's people that have made a fortune on tech businesses, for example, but um, you know, it doesn't really matter. You, you were super successful. Why don't you give back some to society and save all these crises? So I feel like that's the real issue. And, and unfortunately, because we haven't been able to have that conversation in a proper way um, we have a new left flank, um, and I, and I have to confess, I'm a lefty, right? Like I'm, a, I'm a social Democrat, like I believe in social safety nets and public institutions. But we have a new left flank that feels like we just have to burn everything down and we need, a you know, a, a French revolution moment where we decapitate, uh, billionaires and parade their heads on the street. And, and like, if you talk to college kids now. They're, this is where they're at. They think Stalin was. You could look at. Scare, it, honestly, I'll tell you, it scares me. They're like Stalin and Mao are suddenly heroes on social media, for these kids because they don't they don't understand the whole picture. But I think we have this issue now where because we we had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to fix this, and we never did. So now we've got a new left flank that wants to burn everything down and. At all costs, you know? And uh, it's a radicalization. Sorry, that's, yeah, I didn't really answer your question on degrowth, but I think you know where I was headed is that I think degrowth is going to be forced upon us.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, radicalization is happening both on the left and the right, you know? So it's like with the climate chaos, the right falls back into, well, we need to clamp down harder and deny any sort of change that these people are pushing because it's going to get things to be even worse, which, you know, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, so to speak. So I don't want to, I don't want to, it's so easy to dwell on negativity. And I'm intrigued by, you know, your observation that, you know, we have to be more optimistic. And I, 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 agree with that. I think that was like a, if there's one insight that people can bring from this program, I think that that is really really it. So going back to kind of the very beginning, how do we get growth or even degrowth with innovation? You know, there's obviously so much exciting stuff going on. I mean, if you look just simply at like the advance of plant-based foods in the past two years, I mean, I don't think you could find a more boring sector than food. And yet this has been like probably the most exciting thing to occur in business in 50 years and you know it's it's continuing and ongoing but there's so many other areas that have this kind of opportunity
1: Hmm. yeah no every every area does like we you know after funding a lot of the scientific work it, we we ended up coming on we call it the three pillar framework which is the three things we have to do to achieve the 1.5 c goal of the paris agreement and that's you know renewable energy, protecting nature, and transitioning our food system to be more sustainable. And and inside of each of those, as you said, there um, there's a world of opportunity. Um, that's why actually I'm not buying. I'm not I'm not saying degrowth won't happen. I'm just saying I'm not buying it as a necessary instrument of change. Because actually, if you look at the growth opportunity, I mean we're getting closer and closer to like practically free energy. Um, I mean, the new projects are a, one cent a kilowatt hour in some of these uh, concentrating solar plants or hybrid plants. Like, so we're getting close to like unlimited energy and you think about what's possible with that. And that, by the way, that includes fuel. So something a lot of people don't get, let's just talk about energy for a second. And then yeah. I definitely wanna to jump to food because that's super interesting. Um, but on energy, you know, we have all the like we have ninety nine percent of the technology on the shelf ready to go to solve climate change on the energy side. we We basically do. Like we don't need any novel uh, it's not the novel inventions aren't and improved efficiencies and all those things aren't useful and necessary because we always want to get more and more efficient. but um, we don't need to invent anything new per se, um, that, but that's not, we may get new technology emerging soon actually on energy. The energy space is just enormous opportunity. And in the model, in this book that I just was waving, um, there's a whole chapter on jobs. They did an economic analysis that showed actually, we net increase 25 million jobs through a, a um, distributed uh, through multi-portfolio approach to energy. Um, And that's blending all of these different renewable energy sources from the everyone knows wind and solar, but there's huge opportunities in geothermal solar heat, um, distributed energy, you can also convert uh, liquid fuels using um, hydrogen as a carrier, and that means we can repurpose the gas, whole gas um, pipeline infrastructure to deliver clean hydrogen, Um, we have wave energy coming on, we've, it's just like it's a bonanza out there. I mean, there and, and let, let's not even talk about storage. I mean, energy storage. You know, five years from now, we could have little the beginning of like little boom boxes that we could power our whole house with. So that's going to be an enormous amount of. So I want to say there's lots of growth opportunity and a lot of employment opportunities. Yes, coal miners will lose their jobs, but they there's plenty of better jobs for them. And so on the energy side. To switch to the food side, um, uh, I think one of the there's certainly plant based like just so people know, like the climate model So the IPCC put out AR six, which is the six assessment reports. That's the big scientific paper, the series of compilations of papers that it informs the UN Convention on Climate. So there's a new carbon budget in there that carbon budget is we can emit 400 billion tons before we hit hit the mark of crossing the 1.5 threshold. Um, But uh, there is um, assumptions in there that we're going to reduce methane and nitrogen, which are uh, nitrous oxide, which are gases associated with agriculture, and in in particular with livestock. Um, So cows burp a lot of methane. And there's also other gases associated with livestock and also food production and food waste. So all of those things are innovation sectors, like so there's actually plant based meat that helps us eat less real meat. There's actually making cattle have less indigestion, (laughs) which is a whole interesting technology uh, space. Um, There's also uh, food waste innovations like um, Reducing through logistics through advanced logistics, reducing um, a lot of a, a, a third of all food produced is just goes to rot. And that's at a combination of in our fridges in the stores and also on the farms, just because of logistics and um, so that there's opportunity there for making that efficient so and there's a, a the space that i'm really, really interested in is um, on on crop optimization. Um, There's AI is giving us the ability to use satellite data to actually figure out through AI where crops are best suited to grow. And there was a great paper out on this that showed um, if we just sort of shuffle around crops and um, grow rye in more Northern locations and, and move wheat to the left and rice to the right, like it's kind of like that, you can actually get these huge yield gains which are more profitable, um, potentially, and maybe more inclusive as well, including more farmers and um, uh, decentralizing agricultural production and making it um, lots of little farms, rather than three or four giant agricultural companies. Um, And there's huge efficiencies there. And so AI and satellite imagery, I think, are going to really help change how food is made and um, grown and produced and delivered and so that's a huge opportunity space and then nature i want to end with that because the third that's that's our second pillar it. nature is uh, as part of the going back to the carbon budget i mentioned of 400 gigatons um, we we have it's impossible i'm going to say it I can go on a limb here. It is absolutely impossible to decarbonize global energy in time. Um, that, if you look at that's, we're less than ten years of, if, if we're about eight eight years away from hitting that budget. So we're in no way gonna go to zero in eight years. So um, nature, it turns out, and this is research we've supported, and others have worked on this, but. Um, there's a huge potential because we've done such a bad job of land management over the past hundred years. There's a huge potential to actually restore land, and that can be restoring it for forests, but also restoring it for grazing land and natural land of other types. There's a, a carbon removal potential. So, um, and the paper we have, we've been funding research on this, and the paper's coming out next year that places that at about 100 gigatons of sea. So that's about 365 gigatons, billion tons of carbon dioxide that can be pulled out of um, the atmosphere and put into tree roots um, and tree bark. <laughs> and, um, and then there's other really, another paper just came out two days ago showing wetlands has a big opportunity to remove carbon. So nature is turning out to be this amazing machine That we haven't figured out how to optimize yet and i think technology is going to help us again remote sensing but other technologies to help us really partner with nature and um, and actually make nature more complex and we found complexity and having rich biodiversity and all the critters and all different kinds of bushes and trees it's not tree planting right it's forest planting and forest restoration that actually is the most efficient way and the cheapest way to remove carbon. So that's a whole new world of science and could employ literally a billion people um, yeah. in a new economy that values nature. Um, so that's another opportunity space.
0: Yeah, And I mean, to actually promote that from a private company standpoint, literally all you need is a change in the tax code, right? I mean, if you change people's um, what drives them in terms of their motivations, you can drive positive behavior. And so by creating an incentive for, let's say, Exxon to found 20 reforestation camps and support them and have them monitored to prove that they're actually doing this, you know, and that pays off in a positive way in terms of their finances. It offsets the risk that they're losing in terms of the carbon that they need feel that they need to produce, you know, so there's so much opportunity, but it takes just rethinking of what our priorities are.
1: Well, um, I mean, glad you brought up that example because that shows you why sort of why science and technology is so important because actually the company you mentioned is and others other fossil fuel companies are trying to say, well, we're going to keep mining and burning fuels and don't worry about it because we're going to plant some forests over here so i think what's emerging this week so the, the the climate conference is happening right now in glasgow as we speak this week and next week um there's this is a huge hot topic and uh actually yesterday there was a big a big um greta stormed a meeting um and I think some of you probably have seen uh, some meetings at like TEDx where the youth activists basically called the CEO of Shell, I think, like an evil human, you know? So the kids are like not, they're not okay with that idea. Yeah. And I agree with them. I, you know, fossil, what 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 these companies need to be spending their money on right now is becoming clean energy companies. Um, they should not be spending money on forests. If they have extra shekels to throw and, that that's great but they they shouldn't be talking about forests as part of their primary business because honestly as i said it's limited um, and in the climate model we have on our you can see it on our website you really need to you need to switch to renewables as fast as you can and that you know that for us we say like 100% renewable by 2050 that means jets that means melting steel, that means you know, what you're driving your car with, um, that means how you're heating your home, how you're cooking your food, everything, 100% by 2050. Um, and that's not net, right? That means actually uh, it has to be 100% clean. And then in addition to that, we also have to max out the nature restoration. So there isn't really wiggle room for the big fossil fuel companies to use forests. us. And that's, that's like really emerging this week as a key point in the in the climate conference. But I think, I'm glad you raised it because I think a lot of people are, there's certainly a lot of marketing <laughs> where suddenly these companies that are responsible for giant oil spills and destroying communities uh, through toxic sludge being dumped in their water table are now trying to rebrand themselves as, oh, we love we're we're tree huggers, too. Um, So I think that's not going to (laughs) fly in this new uh, era.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, we definitely need to the, the mindset of big oil just seems to be, you know, as long as we confuse or delay that we don't have to change. And it really has become a matter of there has to be a drop dead date of using fossil fuels at all Mm. and to really push forcefully against, you know, the uh, continuation of internal combustion engines.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's what's annoying is that I feel like I, I, you know, and if you know this phrase, but the Kodak moment, right, like why didn't Kodak become a leader in digital photography? Right. Like why it's like this, these there's so many examples in littered in in the history of businesses of not innovating because they had gotten too big and were doing a good job at their sector and didn't want to deal with the innovation space.
0: Yeah.
1: And so instead, guess what? Like Kodak's gone, you know? Yeah. And yeah um i mean i feel like that is we were talking about this i mean bp did a whole thing where they were going to change to become a clean energy company and they were going to start investing in wind and solar and and then um and and then that, there was for for a year or two it looked like wow this is going to happen and then it stopped they got a new ceo shareholders revolted they wanted their quick and dirty money for their dividends and that was that and yeah. so i mean what's so sad it's the tragedy of the commons that like i mean we we have the success of engine number no. one you know having done the huge shareholder action which i'm sure you you maybe you've even talked about on the show but like the fact that now you know there are exxon um there are i think i think it's five but i heard there's gonna two more are gonna be appointed so it'll be seven board seats out of 14 that are essentially activists Um, And they are calling for the company to pivot and say like if Exxon for for shareholders, instead of shareholders like I want my check, (laughs) yeah, I want my monthly check, I don't care if we have to destroy a village in Angola for that oil um to shifting where shareholders are like no i want to, i want exxon to be giving me dividend checks for my kids in 20 years that means they have to become a clean energy company now they should have done it 20 years ago yeah. i mean it's the same thing with tesla like yeah. like chevy could have been tesla like it's the same thing it's like these incumbents their reluctance to move but but You know, anyway, well, it's coming whether or not they like it. So.
0: Well, this goes back to, you know, what what we had um, between the 30s and the 70s was really an economy built on stakeholder capitalism. And with Milton Friedman and what happened with Ronald Reagan in the 70s and on is shareholder activism. And companies responded to that by basically becoming financialized, where, you know, it was all about dividends and buying back shares instead of investing in real innovation and technology, which then create a better long-term company. And the reality is we need to shift back to that stakeholder approach in order to be able to get our priorities straight to have that kind of, uh, to be able to survive. I mean, bottom line. So
1: yeah, I mean I think I think a lot of people want they're it's like they're they're rooting for the big energy companies, but the problem is they're they 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 aren't they haven't they're trying to rebrand as energy companies, but they haven't changed their substantial business. It's like yeah. you know, and I mean this is I mean you probably know a lot more about this than I do, but like in in private, you know, the legacy and organization of legacy companies the culture gets built around past successes and the people that get promoted up to the c-suite um, are they're up they've con- they've gone up through successes that might have happened 20 even 20 years ago right and and yet they're in charge still yeah. and they don't understand the new world and yeah. all of their underlings and they all these companies have wonderful people in them but they can't it's a, it becomes a threat to my past success that i'm going to be rolled over by this whole new industry i don't understand i can't go to a panel to talk about it because i don't understand it so they feel like they're about to be put out to pasture and they are i mean like they they had the chance i mean they could have but i think engine number 1 shows that the shareholder it's coming around to bite its own tail now that the shareholders are really worried about climate change now and um you know the engine one i i have to say if i would never have thought it was possible until the engine number one happened and um now i'm seeing wow this is really this could happen across the whole sector Mm -hmm. Um, and basically i think divestment
0: divestment has had a real impact you know i think um even before COVID, fossil fuel companies had a really difficult time getting financing and surviving. Um, and, you know, kind of COVID and what the government did in terms of supporting the economy gave them a, a fresh pair of legs, so to speak. But, you know, there were a lot of uh, companies that um, went away before COVID. And, you know, the realization that, the clock is ticking is is there because of divestment. So I encourage people to, you know, divest, make your 401k money, you know, yeah. Give it some power to have an impact on the future that we're going to have.
1: Yeah. If people are interested in that, there's um, a great organization called as you so sow.org they have um, they're rolling out a new um, the data analytics on this is like unbelievably complex but they're, they've been able to go into mutual funds 401 one pension plans and a lot of them are funds of funds and there's EFTs bundled in there so they've, they've been able to unpack it all. So you can actually get a carbon intensity of your portfolio. So that's for people that want to divest that's going to be a great tool. I, I have to say like part of me is like yeah I think if you're a smaller guy like. The re- most of us, the regular people, divesting is just for me like a moral conscious. I, I just morally, I want to do that. Um, but but I have to say, there what we've seen with Engine One is that shareholder activism is just as powerful, if not more powerful than divestment. Um, they're both powerful, um, and I think divestment worked particularly well on coal, and as you said, pre COVID. Coal like we saw these uh, bankruptcies um, chapter 11 happening in the coal industry, and that was because finance. got heart got harder and part of it was the social license for funding coal was revoked effectively and the CalPERS and the big pension funds just were like nah, It wasn't really divestment it was like really more from a risk perspective, like this is just going to get too expensive, and so I think. Um, not to poo-poo the divestment movement because I think it's important, um, but that um, that so that happened with coal. I, I think the next one up on the chopping block is um, I actually think it's going to be gas, uh, not oil. Um, but I could be wrong. Uh, I think um, a great organization. If you f- want to follow them on Twitter, it's at Carbon Bubble. It's a think tank in London that that really does a great job looking at the economics, and they get internal data from fossil fuel companies, and the the, the balance sheets are not looking good for oil and gas, and and oil and gas is often like it's the same companies, but um, uh, natural gas is uh, frac, fracking in particular has a lot of uh, risks and. Externalized expenses that are soon going to have to get priced in, and um, that's going to be a big innovation that's going to happen. Oil is is very handy; it's the most efficient storage of of energy that we have on the planet right now, and I I believe it probably will have a life you know up to twenty fifty, but it's going to decline greatly. Um, and what's going to happen? This is really interesting. If people want to check it out, um, there's a the ability so oil is not oil uh, there's there's. Um, oh, do we freeze. James? No. Oh, you're okay. Oh, so I thought maybe I, I looked like I froze for a second. Um, so if you, you can compare a barrel of oil from um, uh, let's call it Kuwait and a barrel of oil, um, a very nice barrel of sweet crude right from Kuwait or Saudi Arabia, you compare that with a barrel of oil from the tar sands in Alberta you can actually um, attach data to that barrel. And this, this one barrel has 50% more carbon in it um, in the tar sands case, because it's a hugely energy intensive. It's, it's the world's most insane, in the, in the history books, people are gonna look at tar sands Alberta and go like that was literally the craziest thing next to like nuclear arms race that humans ever did on the planet. Um, but we know that there's this huge embodied energy. Very, very soon, um, commodity traders are going to have attributes on their trades. And um, there's a really interesting company uh, that I called Expansive X P A N S I V that just um, did an announcement with S and P on methane. Um, and I sh- I have to disclose I'm a shareholder of uh, I mean I own equity in Expansive. Um, it's not it's not publicly traded. Um, But um, Expansive is a really exciting company because they're taking big data and um, using blockchain technology, you can actually attribute data to trades. So soon the market's gonna be able to price in some of these differentials. um, And I believe that's gonna really make a huge difference in in funneling money in the right direction. Mm. So all these innovations are coming down, man.
0: Uh, (laughs) I I wouldn't wanna
1: be in the fossil fuel industry. No,
0: I mean, the the reality is, you know, a lot of a lot of the work that I do is in divestment. But, you know, the main thing that people should know is it's been a losing investment for a number of years. And if for no other reason than just managing your own financial risk, you know, don't put money into it. I mean, obviously, you have the moral issues as well, but, you know, there's. Tons of reasons to not go down that road and to find a better place to uh, put your money to work. So yeah,
1: and and I mean, I think there's some sci- uh, the funny thing about as you so mentioned, I was talking to them yesterday, um, but I remember Cornerstone um, Capital put out a report as well that it's 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 sort of personal morals of wanting to get out of this dirty energy space, but also like. The funds which have divested actually outperform um, other the you know index in the regular index so it's like you're you're getting some basis points by actually divesting so at some point now divesting has become. It's true moral issue as well as like actually i'm going to make a little bit more if i do this so that's to me a pretty big game changer
0: yeah and i think that's really what has you know the oil industry scared is because they see that that kind of realization has come and you know the recognition that you know they're not able to keep up with it at this point yeah and that's
1: still without a carbon tax like yeah. we still don't have it's like it's every they were all worried about the carbon tax like that's why they were doing all of this is like as long as we can keep a carbon tax away, we'll be all right. And it's like, we still don't have a carbon tax, and it's still happening. Yeah, It's amazing. Like, I would have thought you needed a tax to make this kind of movement, but you don't. It's just yeah. happening anyway, because people have decided it's time.
0: Yep. Um We've covered a lot of a uh, lot of areas. I'm sure we can cover a lot more. Um, we'll have to do uh, another show at some point. If people want to learn more about uh, your work with uh, One Earth, how can they uh, how can they find you?
1: Uh, well, it's it's One Earth spelled out. So oh, O-N-E-E-A-R-T-H dot org One Earth. Um, you could you can Google my name too. You'll you'll I'll probably pop up there, and we have um, we have some cool stuff there. Uh, I mean, primarily we're philanthropy, you know, so we work with funders who are trying to especially it gets busier towards the end of the year with tax season. um, Trying to spend their money well on charity, Um, and so we have a vetting process where uh, we have called the project marketplace there's a lot of cool projects there um, that people can directly fund and we don't actually make money from that It's just sort of a service we offer and. um, Yeah, and we have a lot of scientific resources. So all the we fund a lot of literature and really cutting edge stuff. And then, more important, we try to make it understandable to people. So I spend um, quite a bit of time trying to get make it um, more accessible. So if you look on the science section under Explore, you'll see some of the scientific work we funded, and to get information, um, and you you'll probably see stuff there you can't see elsewhere. we just try to make it really accessible. Yeah. Very so cool. yeah, check it out and um, always email uh, email us. And uh, yeah, always looking for other partners too, because this is going to be a really a fast, sort of like a fasten your seatbelts kind of decade, I think.
0: Yeah, I definitely, uh, definitely agree. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat. And um, like I said, we'll have to talk again. Thanks, Carl.
1: Yeah, thank you. It was fun. Talk soon.